Thanks for downloading Development Drums, a podcast about international development issues, with me, Owen Bader. My guest today is former British Prime Minister Tony Blair. I met Mr Blair in his office in London, and we talked about his work supporting three African governments, and his views about development, the importance of democracy, the role of the UK's Department for International Development, and the doctrine of liberal interventionism. You can subscribe to Development Drums free of charge on iTunes, or you can listen to it on the Development Drums website. You can also join the Development Drums Facebook group, where you can suggest guests for future episodes, and where you can put your question which you would like me to ask. Tony Blair, welcome to Development Drums. Thank you. Um, I'm sure many of our listeners will know of your role as the representative of the quartet in the Middle East, but they probably won't know all the range of other things you're doing. Your work on governance in Africa, on sport, on faith. So what is it about these different things that you do that, what made you choose them as opposed to any of the other things that you could be doing? I I mean, I chose these activities for two reasons. The first is there were all issues that I worked on in government, but where I came to a view that, that we had significantly to change global policy in respect of. So, for example, in climate change, I don't think you will succeed in this debate unless you mobilise business and industry to develop the science and technology of the future. In respect of Africa, my conclusion by the end of it, even though we were responsible for big uplifts in aid, was that governance was important as, as aid. Uh, in the Palestinian uh, issue, you know, my view was you had to build the Palestinian state from the bottom up as well as negotiate from the top down. And, and so that's what I, you know, I work on these different, a different range of issues. And then in respect to the Faith Foundation, that's very much about my view is 21st century will not be a century of ideological political struggle, but could be a religious or cultural struggle. And so the, the idea of bringing different cultures and faiths together is, is important. And the second thing is, it's all about making globalisation work. So is there, is there an overarching Tony Blair view of how to make globalisation work? Because all these different things in some way relate to globalisation and many of them relate to development. Is there some overarching set of principles that you're bringing to these different bits of work? Or are yeah, they all different? I, I basically believe the 21st century belongs to the open-minded. So the reason why it's important to, to educate people, uh, to give them opportunity, is so that their minds are open to innovation, to change, because the single biggest characteristic of the world today is the change that's being driven by, by the internet and by technology. And if, if, you know, if we want people in Africa, for example, to succeed today, it's not you know, an old-style kind of paternalistic approach. Um, you know, the wealthy countries give money to the poor countries. That, that's not what's going to work. What is going to work is those countries systemically changing the way they govern themselves so that they're releasing the talent of their people by educating them, by you know, bringing in intellectual capital from outside, um, by creating that sense of, of, of an open-minded country. Um, and even in the poorest countries where you do that, it works. So let's come then to the governance initiative, which is your particular focus on how to helping countries to improve their governance. Tell us about what, what it is and what it does. We operate at the moment with the Africa Governance Initiative in three countries, uh, Rwanda, Sierra Leone and Liberia. We'll probably take on another two this year. Uh, but essentially what we do is we put in teams of people full-time alongside the presidents of those countries and they work on building capacity at the centre and then in the other departments, training up the people in that country um, and 
you know, it's been remarkably successful, actually, in each of these three countries, I would say we're making a... So the three countries at the moment are Rwanda, Sierra Leone and Liberia. And do you know yet where where you might expand to? Um, We've got, you know, we're in the process of discussing that. It's probably better not to to disclose it until we conclude those discussions. But, you know, I... We've now got, a, over the last three years, a, a sort of empirical evidence and testbed of, of... A working of, model. Yeah, and, and there's no doubt at all this is absolutely key. I mean, you know, it's making a real difference in those countries. When you spoke at the Centre for Global Development, you made a distinction between development assistance, which is palliative, improving people's lives, and development assistance, which is transformational. Um, I assume that in, in New Labour speak, you would, you would see this as a hand up rather than a hand out, that the intention is to make a, a permanent difference to governance and, and in these poor countries. Absolutely, yeah. So that's what it's about. So it's about empowering people to help themselves. Uh, because in the end, you know, as I often say to the presidents of the countries I work in, I mean, the ambition is to wave the donor community goodbye. The issue then is whether you've... you've um, formed a model or formed a way of working that does actually do that permanently because the, uh, the learning in the development industry has been that this is very hard to do, that uh, technical assistance uh, sometimes works at filling gaps, it helps governments to uh, achieve things while the technical assistance is there, but it's, it's very rarely successful at actually building the capacity of the country itself, of the civil service and so on. What is it that, that you're doing that you think is likely to be more effective than previous approaches that haven't worked? Right, that's a really good point. The reason why our model works um, is because we do it quite differently from normal technical assistance. I think the problem with technical assistance is that, you know, it's like when people often say to me that you've got to train the civil service of the country, you know, in order to be able to, to do the things they need to do. I personally think you can spend literally hundreds of millions of dollars doing that and nothing much come out of it. And we do. Uh, and we do. What we do is different in, in three crucial respects. The first is we combine a political interaction alongside the technical one. So I interact directly with the presidents and with the ministers. Um, I have uh, deputies who will do that as well politically. That makes all the difference in the world because you can give people a great technical vision if it's not politically achievable for the country or it doesn't take account of the political realities, it's hopeless. The second thing is we prioritise. You know, this is about delivering programmes. You see, a lot of people, in my view, um, and I base this all on my own experience in government in a developed country, but people have this view that, that if you train up the service, the civil service, then they can deliver the programs. My view is you actually work on delivering specific prioritized programs and you will get out of that the, um, the, the, the capacity that you then require and can transfer to other things. But it's in the practical prioritization doing things. The learning by doing in context. Absolutely. Um, that makes the difference. And the third thing is we have the teams, our teams live in the country. They work alongside their counterparts. Uh, in the country, there is a very strong interaction. So, for example, when we first came to Rwanda, you know, we were building capacity in around the president there. You know, the president's someone with a very strong, good vision. It wouldn't work otherwise. But now I go back and I get presentations when I'm there from, um, you know, Rwandan civil servants who are the, you know, particularly the young and up and coming generation who are fantastic. 
but but that's because they've worked alongside people, and my teams have worked in they might have worked in Downing Street or McKinsey's or whatever. Uh, you know, they're they're really able able people, and they live there and they work there. So it's a quite different model from a sort of piece of technical work. You know, technical assistance. Um, we also place a huge emphasis on um, getting quality private sector investment in. I think this is of enormous importance because the whole point about governance today, and this is what's both an opportunity and a challenge, the opportunity is what works is absolutely simple. There's no, no doubt at all. If you have a system of predictable rules, absence of corruption, uh, business that comes in is helped to come in, you throw your doors open to quality, transparent private sector investment, you're going to do well. The hard thing, the challenge, is doing it because a lot of these countries don't have those systems at the moment. Uh, who pays for this? What's the, is it, does money come from the government or is this uh, funded by donors? Or? We, we actually raise, at the moment, we raise most of our money through foundations, um, you know, the Soros Foundation, for example, and the Gatsby Foundation. We've got early help from, from Bill Gates' foundation. So we raise it from a variety of things. I mean, I raise money myself. Um, I've helped fund it myself as well, the core costs particularly. Um, but, uh, you know, fundraising is always an issue. But I, I think we're getting to the point now where we're, we're also going to be, you know, mainstreaming a lot of this funding since it's, there's no doubt at all it can work. I mean, just to give you an example, we, we've just been working with Sierra Leone um, with their, their healthcare sector there to deliver the child mortality and maternal mortality program. Now, you know, again, the president agreed that we would prioritize this, right? You could fix everything to do with the health service, but actually, let's just fix this. So introduce the program. I mean, the results in a short space of time, within a year, have been dramatic. I mean, something like three times as many kids being treated in hospital, an 80% reduction in deaths from malaria. You know, it's, 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 it's amazing, reductions in maternal mortality. And that's because we just systematically went through what needed to be done to deliver that program. Now, what then comes out of that is the people in that health department learn from that experience. Uh, they also think, oh, we can do things. It's not impossible. And so you're in a completely different um, mental, you know, state of mental confidence, if you like, when, you, when, when for a long period of time, you know, people were trying to sort these systems out and get nowhere. There's a story that if you, um, if you drop a frog into boiling water, that the frog will jump straight out again. But if you put a frog in cold water and then heat it up slowly, the frog never notices that the water has got hot and, and dies in the water. And I wonder sometimes with these relationships with, with leaders, whether we are the slowly boiling frog, that, that as things gradually get worse, democratic space closes, leaders have been in power for too long. And one of the countries where you work, people say that, that, that they're in danger of doing that. How do you know, uh, how do you judge um, when, what kind of leadership is, uh, is sufficiently democratic, sufficiently accountable? And is there a danger that you stay uh, too engaged for too long? Because like the frog, you, you haven't spotted that the water has got too hot. Um, th there is a risk of this, and you, you, you've got to exercise a judgment about it. Now, in respect to Rwanda and Paul Kagame, I mean, I believe in him and I admire him, and I think he is doing the right things for, for Rwanda. Now, you know, there will come a point 
in which it's right for, for, for the system in that country to evolve. But we've got to understand that they've been through this genocidal experience. It's still fragile. And there is absolutely no doubt about the progress Rwanda's made under his leadership. So, yeah, no, I watch this very carefully, though. Um, now, my judgment about him is, is the judgment I've made. Um, and there would be other situations, I won't mention them in Africa, I don't want to be undiplomatic, where I would say, no, that's a leader I can't work with. So one, one of our listeners actually asked me to ask you about Mela Sanawi, who you once hailed as a new breed of uh, African leader, who again, he's, you know, if he serves out his current term, he'll have been in office 24 years. And, and again, it's a country in which there are worries about democratic space. Uh, do, is he still a new breed of African leader, or is he is he getting to the point now where you think his time might be up? No, again, I would be supportive of him. Um, I think that you know, it's a country that achieved what 11% growth rate last year. If you look at Ethiopia today and compare where it was when he took it over, when it was literally a well, it was a byword, wasn't it? It was it was the symbol of of a desperate. Um, and poor Africa incapable of getting on its feet. So you've got to give him credit for that. Now, um, again, I think there's a process of evolution that's going to have to be gone through. And the lesson, by the way, from all over the world now uh, is systems have to evolve. If they don't, at some point, the people say enough. So it's very much in the interests of those leaders, you know, like Paul Kagame and, and like Melish Sanawi, to, at a certain point, they've got to realize where, where, when it's necessary for that e evolution to happen. But I also think we've got to be realistic that some of these countries are in a, in a position in which if they hadn't you know, had that strong and continuous leadership, they wouldn't be in the position they're in today. So you know, you've got to get that balance right. So this comes directly to a question that another listener asked, Joe Powell. Um, he wonders whether your experience suggests that liberal democracy is not the right governance structure for some developing countries at, at, at some stages of their development. I mean, you seem to be saying that strong continuity and a willingness to work hard to deliver for people is perhaps more important than democratic accountability in this stage. Is that... You it's, a really that difficult, it's a really difficult question. No, I would always be in favour of liberal democracy. In other words, if, if, if you know, I, I, I would always opt for that as, as the choice. I'm just trying to measure realistically in circumstances in which that hasn't happened, how do you judge the leader? And I think you judge the leader by asking, is he really trying to do the best for his country and is that succeeding? You know, so, so although you prefer liberal democracy, you, you would tolerate a little less of it for leaders that are delivering... I, I, I put it in a different way, I would say that... that I still think it's worth working with leaders, especially in circumstances, especially, you know, I think Rwanda was a very special case because of the genocide. Um, but I would still favour working with them to achieve good if they are basically motivated by the desire to do good and are doing good. So, you know, the, the trouble with Mugabe and Zimbabwe, you can make all sorts of points about the democracy, but the single biggest thing is he's wrecked his country. <laughs> you know, now... You can't say that about Melish or, or Paul Kagame. I mean, it's just, a, it's so, look, uh, is, it, is it difficult to make these distinctions in a very logical way sometimes? And, you know, saying this, this person's 
worth working with this person isn't it's no it's a matter of judgment in each case but I, I would feel very confident about working with either of those two leaders you said that that one of the things you wanted to do is to bring the lessons that you learned uh, in government to your work in this and in other fields. So what are, what are the lessons from, from your time in government that you're bringing to the governance initiative? Well, it's one very simple lesson, which is today what matters is efficacy, not ideology. You know, that's the thing. I mean, in this sense, a developed nation is no different from a, a developing nation. What all governments face today is the challenge of fast-changing times, the need to change your country quickly, the need for often systemic change. And the tough thing is doing it. It's not working out what you should do. Because actually what succeeds today is the lessons of it. What works is pretty obvious, frankly. So you look at developed nations, what works in terms of, say, let's say, education reform today is really quite clear, by the way. But doing it is enormously hard. In the developing world, the challenge is different, but the process is the same. It's about focusing on what your priorities are, stripping them down to things that are realisable and practical objectives, like boosting agricultural smallholders, getting certain infrastructure done. You know, if you're in Liberia or Sierra Leone, changing your port, your main port, right? Making it work effectively. Putting in the basic systems of education and healthcare, attracting in private sector investment, allowing people to start businesses properly, you know, engaging with, with proper predictable rules for people. You know, basic elements of law and order, right? All of these things, by the way, are doable. Right. Any country can do them. It's doing it that's hard. So you, you've got to prioritize and get these basic things, you know, priorities um, defined. And then what you've got to do is you've got to find effective systems of delivery. And that's what these, we these focus are all on. technically doable. I mean, you, we know how to dredge a port, for example. But often the reason why they don't get done isn't because we don't technically know how to do it. It's because somebody's brother-in-law is making a lot of money from the old system or there's some powerful group of industrialists who benefit from trade yeah. barriers and so on. It's, it's often not to do with how would you reduce trade barriers or improve your tax system. It's, it's that there are vested interests, powerful political and economic groups, who benefit from the status quo. So what is it that you do? And, and if you're a poor country, you, you can't afford to buy those people off in the way that sometimes you can in a rich country. So is the kind of um, doable that you're talking about doable in a technical sense? Or is it also, are these things also, in your view, politically doable? Yeah, a, a very good point. And that's why the, the, the difference that we do with, with the African governance initiatives is we work as politically as well. So politically, the answer is probably if you decide to do that thing, you can do it, right? And if you decide to do another four things along with it, you can do it. If you decide to do 50 things, you know, I always say to, to the leaders I interact with, if you show me a priority list with 50 things on it, I promise you, you'll do nothing. You know, if you decide you're going to do five things and get them done in your term, you can do it. And you've got to decide which of those things that are really important. Now, you know, um, you know it's like, look, from a different perspective, what I do with the Palestinians. What we worked out with the Prime Minister Salam fired there in Palestine was whatever else he had to do, he had to get the militia off the streets and get security forces in. Right? So he prioritised that. Now that then laid the foundation for the fact that despite all the trouble you've got in the politics of the Palestinian issue at the moment, you've actually got strong economic growth because there's security, there's a proper security on the streets today in the West Bank. So, you know, for, for me, when I'm interacting with the presidents, the first thing we do is focus on priorities. Um, and if you, 
you know, so for example, in Sierra Leone and, and indeed also in, in Liberia, get the lights on in the capital city. Whatever else they're going to be able to say when you then go around the place, you say, I've got the lights on. For the first time, we've got electricity. And that's a basic thing. And then the country also gets the sense, you know, politics can deliver things because the worst thing, you can have a democratic system. You see, this is my real point about efficacy. You can have a democratic system, but if government doesn't change anything, you know, then even the democracy, in a way, becomes corrupted. I don't mean in the, in, the, in, the, in the sort of literal sense, but I mean the sense that people, you know, people run for election based on families and tribes and ethnicity and all the rest of it. Whereas the, the, the stage at which your democracy is, is grounded is when someone runs on the basis, I can do a better job than the other person for you, whoever you may be. And that's when you, you're getting, you know, critical mass. You're listening to Development Drums, and my guest today is former British Prime Minister Tony Blair. If you're interested in international development, you may also be interested in the Global Prosperity Wonkcast, which is a shorter, rather snappier podcast each week by my colleagues at the Centre for Global Development. And you may also enjoy the Guardian newspaper Focus podcast, which often deals with development issues. You can find all these on iTunes, and there are links on the Development Drums website. Here's another question from a listener, Dan, who says, look, a lot of the problems in developing countries are um, put there by the rich world. It's the financial crisis, our failure to agree, trade deals, climate change, all these problems that make it hard for developing countries. And, and the question he asks is, shouldn't you, you know, you, you seem to be blaming the victim, telling them they've got to sort out their problems, but shouldn't you be using your political weight on the world stage to try and change those global things that are affecting developing countries rather than going and telling them how they should sort out their problems? This is a really important argument to take on. I mean, first of all, by the way, you know, in 2005, we did put this problem right at the centre of the G8 summit and, and got huge commitments on aid and debt relief, which have been significantly implemented, by the way. But actually, I just disagree in the end that, that, that the problem is the problem of rich nations and the way they treat poor nations. Um, I, I don't think that, you know, I always say to people um, who I work with in any part of the world, no nation was ever created from a sense of victimhood. You know, you, you, the, the, yes, are trade barriers for the rich world a problem? Yes, although, you know, the European Union and others have now got very liberal policies. But how about trade barriers in East Africa between African countries? You know, how about countries that, are, that have got problems of corruption and the absence of a rule of law and what that does to put off private investment. You know, how, how about situations where, where the basic services can't be delivered by, by, competently by government? I mean, in the end, you know, also, and this is what I think is exciting, the reason I'm an optimist about Africa at the moment is I notice about Africa, what I started to notice about India, you know, maybe 15 years back, which is actually there's a new generation of younger Africans who are coming into positions of leadership, doing things in business, who are saying, yeah, you know, the colonial past is a terrible thing, but you know something, I'm really going to focus on the future now and I'm going to, we are going to take the future into our own hands. And when that psychological shift happens, that's when a country starts to move. Um, and so, look, there are things that we can do, um, you know, 
from the wealthy nations, of course. But I'm afraid if I had to, based on the experience that I have working in countries, I actually think, you know, Africa shouldn't regard itself as dependent on what the wealthy world does. I mean, I think it's a lot more about taking its destiny in its own hands. I think, as you say, a lot of Africans listening to this would, uh, would agree with that and resent, resent the painting of You know, one of the things I've learned, and this has been really important education for me, actually, in these last few years, through the Africa Government's initiative, is how many really smart people there are in these countries. So all they need is systems that work, and then they'll do the rest. A lot of the people who listen to this podcast are not from the UK, and many of them are a bit baffled about how it is that in the UK we've built such a strong consensus around development. And I wondered if there's something you've learned as you've travelled around thinking about development, talking about development, that would uh, explain to other people why it is that the UK has been so firm on increasing aid, on having a, a Department for International Development that has cabinet status and is independent of the Foreign Office. What, what, is this something special about the UK? What, is it, what, what has enabled us to have that political consensus here? Um, I mean, the, the, the consensus is a, is a great thing, and I regard it actually as an achievement of the, the previous Labour government. And, and, you know, to be fair, I think it's been really important that the new government that's come in has committed itself to, to maintaining that position. I think we built the consensus um, because we didn't keep it just as a political consensus. And here's where people like Bob Geldof and Bono and others were incredibly important. The churches, you know, and the faith community. I mean, this was a civic society consensus, not just a political consensus. And, you know, it also became a source of pride. And then the fact that the Department for International Development was created, and there was a lot of controversy about it. And, I mean, to be frank, even at times, you know, I, I used to find different hard to deal with because they were kind of, they regarded themselves as almost an independent part of government, which, um, which was difficult from time to time. But as a result of that, they had a sort of spirit of endeavour, you know, they were innovative. Um, and, you know, whatever differences, political differences have been between myself and Gordon Brown on, on, on this issue and on development and everything, we were absolutely as one. In retrospect, would you have done that differently? Because this is a live issue in some other countries, should they have an independent uh, department working on development issues? You, you said that it, sometimes it was difficult to work with. Would you have done it a bit differently? Should it have been a bit more within the Foreign Office and the, the broader foreign policy community? You know, the funny thing is, if I was, when I was Prime Minister, I often used to think maybe I should have done that differently when I was running a government. Now I'm part of the development world as it were I'm very convinced that it was right that it was separate because <laughs> I think it just gives it it gives it a position and it gives it a um, as I said the best way I can descri describe differ is that it had a spirit about it different from any other part of government it was I thought often prepared to be innovative um, uh, creative uh, it was independent but sometimes in the best way for example it was very very strong on untying aid um, Claire Short, to be fair, did a good job on that. And, you know, we also, and this is one of the reasons why we achieved the consensus, I think, because it became, a, 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 if you like, a kind of market leader in development, I think that also helped the way that people viewed our position. We were proud of the fact that we were leaders in development. I don't think that would have happened if you'd kept differed within the Foreign Office. So, you know, I won't say from time to time as Prime Minister, I didn't get a bit... Um, 
frustrated with it. But In retrospect, you still think it was the right thing to do? I do, yeah. Good. Can I switch to a different subject? One of our listeners, who is a former diplomat and also happens to be my father, um, <laughs> asks... So that's important. Right, that's important. Yes. That. Um, asks a question about um, the responsibility to protect that was um, agreed in uh, 2005 at the Special UN Summit. And the question he asks is, is, is that commitment roughly what you were envisaging when you gave your Chicago speech in 1999? Is, is that kind of, does it give the West the kind of uh, mandate to uh, act, in, particularly in developing countries, that you were envisaging in Chicago when you were talking about failed states? Yes, I think it does give, give, give that uh, mandate. I mean, you will always have a huge debate over individual instances of where people will argue whether you should or should not intervene. But I, you know, I, I can't look back on Rwanda and think that we shouldn't have. Um, and actually, if you talk to Bill Clinton, he's very open, very honest about this. Um, and I was always on the, you know, I'm on the, the intervening side of the debate. I mean, I don't think you could have allowed, uh, I think what France did recently you know, has been important as well. Um, you mean you know, in Libya? Uh, in Libya, um, I think also, you know, in Cote d'Ivoire, it was important that, you know, the election results stood. Um, so so the experience since then has made you, has, has, if anything, reinforced your view that we should err a bit more on the side of intervening. Well, because I think we've, you see, part of the trouble with the way the world works today is if something's not flashed across the television screen the whole time, we don't kind of think it's happening. But actually, in circumstances where there is a brutal oppression of people, you know, their lives are just ruined. But you, you wouldn't recommend intervening today in Zimbabwe, say? I mean, I don't think it's feasible to intervene militarily at all. No, of course not. But... But I am in favour of taking as strong action as you possibly can. And by the way, one thing I think is very important for African countries is to, you know, call time on their own folk who are behaving badly. Um, you know, so it's, it's not, you know, you, sh you should not be in a situation where people are brutally suppressing the citizens of their country and the world just stands by. And I, and I think that the, 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 the notion of a responsibility to protect, as I say, you'll have a vast amount of argument over each individual instance, but I think anchoring that principle at the heart of the United Nations has been important. Last question. You're, you're a young man. The managing directorship of the IMF <laughs> is, is vacant. I, I haven't heard signs that you're standing for that. Would, no. if, if there was an international job like that, would you take it? Um, well, I mean, if the, if the presidency of the European Union had been offered, I would have done it, for sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean... Not the IMF or the World Bank's not. You don't think the World Bank would be for you? Secretary General of the UN? <laughs> no, I don't think that's likely either. I mean, you know, I, I keep an open mind to these things, but, but at the moment I'm building, you know, a different type of organisation. And, and funnily enough, you know, in, in the areas in which I'm working now, I would say I don't have the same power that I did as Prime Minister, but I probably have more influence on and, and, and shaping events. So in the Middle East, for example, I do more... I probably have a greater influence on what's happening today than I did when I was Prime Minister. Likewise in Africa, I feel the work I'm doing now is very different from, say, getting people to agree a big uplift in aid and so on and so forth, but actually on the ground I feel I'm having 
you know, if anything, more effect than I had before. So I find this, the new life is different, but it's, it, and it can be for, very fulfilling though, and it's just a different way of making a difference. Tony Blair, thanks very much for coming on Development Drums. Thank you, Owen, thank you. You've been listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Barder, and my guest today has been Tony Blair. If you enjoyed this discussion, I hope you'll subscribe free of charge to Development Drums on iTunes or on the Development Drums website, and that you'll join the Facebook group.